This is JAMDA on the go. Your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. For a limited time, AMDA's new pocket guide, Parkinson's Disease and Psychosis in the Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Setting, is free when you download the AMDA app. The pocket guide highlights key information needed to recognize, assess, treat, and monitor people with Parkinson's disease in the PALTC setting. It also includes a special focus on Parkinson's disease psychosis. Download the AMDA app to access the new pocket guide today. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jammed On The Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to Jamda On The Go for the November 2021 uh, issue. Jamda, the Journal of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. We will be speaking with Jamda Co-Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and Associate Editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director for the program on aging, disability, and long-term care at the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at the University of North Carolina, where she is an associate professor of family medicine and director of the residency training program. Uh, once again, Drs. Brown and Sloan, welcome back to JAMDA on the go. Great to be here. Thank you, Wayne. So uh, doctors, please uh, give us a, a, a little taste. What are beaks about the November 2021 issue of JAMDA or the articles we're gonna talk about today? Happy to, Wayne. Um, one paper that I'll discuss is about a growing nursing home population, uh, residents under the age of 65. The other paper I'll discuss presents data on reactions to COVID-19 vaccines among nursing home residents. And I'll be discussing two papers about low blood pressure in older persons. One about the definition and prognosis of orthostatic hypotension. The other on hypotension associated with antihypertensive treatment. I am uh, so looking forward to these articles. They um, completely resonate with me, and I know that our guests are thinking the same thing. So first article, Younger Nursing Home Residents, a scoping review of their lived experiences, needs, and quality of life. You know, Dr. Brown, um, we are seeing it, a younger and younger population coming into skilled nursing and uh, in long-term care and resource utilization, a whole different different way of providing care. So, you know, tell us a little bit about this uh, article. Yeah, absolutely. So the first article takes a deeper dive into the characteristics as well as the needs of a, this growing population, residents aged 18 to 64. Mm. Younger nursing home residents have increasingly been seen, I, you know, I think across the world, but uh, predominantly in the US and in Canada in our facilities. It comes as no surprise that their needs are considerably different from our traditional older resident. Studying who they are, why they live in a nursing home and their quality of life there is quite important in order to inform the care that we provide. 
So this study took a look at the experiences, the needs, and the noted quality of life among nursing home residents, again, that were between 18 and 64. A scoping review of the literature from five different databases was completed. And the majority of these younger residents studied were white, male, and single, had a lower education level, and were nursing home residents for at least three years. And they also had limited family support. The studies included here focused on debilitating conditions such as mental illness, such as depression and schizophrenia, traumatic injury, such as cerebrovascular accidents and spinal cord injuries, as well as um, quadriplegia for the major characteristics as to why or diagnoses as to why these residents were admitted. The work here found five main themes to emerge in regards to these residents, which included con uh, concern for or felt like they were experiencing confinement, mm. lack of socialization, lack of privacy, lack of appropriate settings, and the loss of their identity. So in regards to confinement, nearly all of the studies that were investigated found that younger nursing home residents describe limited opportunities to explore life outside of the nursing home, which resulted in an emerging sense of confinement. They reported feeling powerless and with a loss of self-determination in many aspects of their lives, including but not limited to their food choices, their, when they ate their meals, and that their social activities were mostly unfulfilled. In all studies, younger nursing home residents described a desire to socialize with people in their same age group, basically to receive peer support, and or with the external community, as well as their immediate family, friends, and significant others. Young residents also described having a lack of privacy in our nursing facilities, including privacy and in personal hygiene in their routines and also in intimacy. Having their own bathroom carried a lot of weight. And finally, younger residents described lacking a sense of belonging, personhood, and sense of empowerment. So consistently, these younger residents noted that nursing homes were for old folks, not for them. The article goes on to suggest some strategies for improving quality of life, particularly as it has to do with these five um, subsets or five themes that emerged. Um, some of these strategies included increasing autonomy and socialization within the same age group, providing age appropriate activities for the individuals and training existing staff to take care of younger residents, since I think much of our work has been focused on taking care of older residents. It's really an interesting read. and. and an interesting thought piece on maximizing an individual resident's experience and quality of life within the nursing home, no matter their age. Yeah, you know, Dr. Brown, I, I read this article and I thought two things. I thought, one, you know, this um, really aligns with the work that many of our listeners are probably doing with regard to dual eligible um, uh, uh, folks, um, you know, this, the special needs population. Um, you know, that's caring for, for younger folks. So these, this is a, a reality, but then I thought about the reality check part and our, our, what this, what this paper found from the younger residents interviewed, are they really saying things that the older residents would say either if they could, or if they had the opportunity to do so? So is this really a reflection of what is happening for everybody in the nursing facility? Yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating. Um, 
And just so important to be thinking about individual, individualizing care plans, I think um, yeah. that's what really struck home for me. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, let's move on to the next two articles. Orthostatic hypotension is a risk factor for falls among older adults, a three-year follow-up. And hypotension in nursing home residents on antihypertensive treatment, is it associated with mortality? You know, and I have to tell you, Dr. Sloan, um, these two uh, articles resonated with me because I had a flashback to my fellowship um, and uh, Dr. Lewis Lipsitz, uh, who uh, is the chair of uh, geriatrics um, uh, at uh, Beth Israel? He um, this was his this was his thing. Uh, hypotension falls, uh, and we got such great lecturing. And it's just what's amazing to me is that that's well over twenty years ago, and it's an issue that we are still actively talking about now. The different aspects of low blood pressure in older individuals. Yes, I, I actually know Lou well, and we were working in similar areas for a while. I mean, for several years, I ran a clinic for persons 60 and older with chronic and recurrent dizziness. And as you can imagine, orthostatic hypotension was one of the issues I ran across frequently, as well as in subsequent clinical settings. And we, we always, we, you can't miss it in aging. So I've tended to follow that literature fairly closely. And before talking about these two papers on hypotension, I wanted to say a few general comments about measurement of orthostasis. You know, we all learned an official definition of orthostasis. Now, the one I learned is systolic reduction of 20 millimeters or larger or diastolic drop of 10 millimeters or more measured three minutes after standing from a recumbent position for a couple of minutes. We all know a definition like that, and I suspect we all think it has serious limitations, especially in the geriatric population. <laughs> and I remember, I remember being in the office with with medical students um, who are working with um, with my patient panel uh, and doing orthostatics, and remarking about how long three minutes seemed for both them and for our our patients and uh oh yeah this is this really rings true at the at the um at the at the craziness that standing for three minutes could be for older adults yeah so i'm going to talk more about that because the reality is that some people especially older folks get symptoms without meeting the definition mm -hmm. you know one example you know 84 year old it's difficult to manage congestive heart failure the cardiologist wants to keep the systolic at 90 or below, has a medication adjustment or a viralness, you know, and all of a sudden they got dizzy spells and perhaps a fall, you know. Now, I would only believe a positive test in somebody like that, not a negative one, using those definitions. Right. So there's another more important measurement issue than how low does it go or how much does it drop, and that is measuring at three minutes, which is what you were talking about. Um, because there are really three types of orthostatic hypotension, each of which is distinctive and each of which is clinically important. And that's what this definition totally avoids. The first type is classic orthostatic hypotension. It acknowledges that blood pressure may be unstable for a short while after standing. That's normal. It should equilibrate soon within seconds, usually. It's back to normal easily by a minute. And three minutes just increases the specificity. But the second time type is early onset orthostasis. You know, here the blood pressure doesn't just drop 20 or 25 millimeters a couple of seconds, you know, 
but it drops further and for longer. You know, even the blood pressure is, you know, maybe back to normal in a minute, but it can be a problem. You know, people fall soon after they stand. They don't wait for three minutes. And in geriatrics, we see this all the time. And I would venture a guess, and interesting in your thoughts, I think this is the most common type of clinically significant orthostasis. Oh, uh, uh, absolutely. Watching the blood pressure drop below 20 points um, and very slow to respond, um, that has been the, the classic paradigm for me. And you don't have to wait for three minutes at all. Yeah. Now, the third type of hypotension is much less common. It's really interesting. You know, it's easy not to recognize it. Um, it's a phenomenon where the autonomic nervous system seems to get fatigued, you know, after 20 minutes or so, and rather suddenly the bottom falls out on the blood pressure, you know, so a patient might be working in the kitchen, you know, doing fine and everything, but she knows that after a while, she's going to have to hold on to the kitchen table, sit down, you know, or she's going to fall. And the best method of diagnosis to diagnose this is tilt table testing. Uh, but I've seen, you know, his systolic drops as much as 50 millimeters or more in somebody who at three minutes, they were fine. So this is what's called delayed postural hypotension. Wow. So what does this month's JAMDA tell us it's new? Well, the first article provides data confirming what we've been talking about regarding the limitations of the classic diagnosis of orthostasis. In the paper, investigators in Finland measured orthostatic blood pressure 30 seconds and three minutes after the subject arose from recumbent position. Their sample was community-dwelling persons, two-thirds of whom were 65 to 74, and one-third of whom were 75 or older. They weren't super frail older persons. Still, they found a prevalence of orthostasis meeting the 2010 definition at 30 seconds was 23%, and at three minutes it was 7%. Right. And that's pretty much what we would have expected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. here's the interesting thing. They followed these individuals for 36 months to find out who had falls during the follow-up period and whether orthostasis predicted future falls. What they found was that both measurements had a modest and similar ability to predict falls, but only the 30-second measurement was good at identifying people who would have injurious falls. It, therefore, in my opinion, makes a case for changing the standard definition of orthostasis as we practice and teach it to 30 seconds and not three minutes. Of course, much work will need to be done to validate this comparison in a variety of settings, but I'm getting on this train and I'm riding with it. So, um, so Dr. Sloan, I don't know about Dr. Brown, but I have been on this train for my career. So yeah. Um, uh, measuring um, at 30 seconds um, because, you know, uh, these are the folks who the the uh, the phone rings in the other room and they jump up to get it yeah. and uh and they don't quite make make it to the phone i used to say the phone rings um they'll call back so yeah this is this is the group i have always been concerned about and i bet our listeners and readers are thinking the exact same thing well maybe we should just kill that definition yeah i would Mallory, what do you think I would for, 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 for this unique population, I would yeah. uh, of older adults, I definitely would think about that. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a number. It's not um, necessarily a way of life, if you will. <laughs> Age is all in the eye of the beholder. That's right. yeah. So the other study that I want to talk about is really a, 
not about postural hypotension, but about low blood pressure when the patient is sitting. And it involves nursing home residents, you know, people who are much more frail. The question the, they asked was whether among residents receiving antihypertensive drugs, it's a mortality risk if the blood pressure is too low. You know, we keep trying to lower the blood pressure lately. And uh, what they found is I, the best way I can describe it is indeed there is a U-shaped curve of blood pressure and mortality. And we've seen it in patients who are not under treatment for hypertension, and it seems to be the same for antihypertensive treatment. The take-home message is that if the diastolic is routinely 60 millimeters of mercury or below, the mortality risk goes up. So the authors recommend paying attention in treating nursing home residents for hypertension not to drop the diastolic too low. And of course, this can be challenging because what we deal with is wide pulse pressures, you know, in older persons with frailty and multimorbidity. So just a matter of watching it closely. Well, but haven't we known for, um, for a significant amount of time that widened pulse pressures in older adults was actually um, uh, uh, an increased risk factor of, I think, mortality? Yeah, yeah. And of course, because you know what happens is systolic is more associated with stroke, which becomes more and more common as people get older. And diastolic is related to other types. And you know, I don't even know the mechanism. I would assume it has to do with um, really diminished cardiac output. I mean, we really do know, you know, the sprint trials have 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 just given a lot of evidence that older adults should for all intents and purposes, not be treated any differently than younger adults with regard to uh, bl blood pressure goals. I don't know. And I'd be interested to know what our listeners and readers think as well, because I, I just have such a hard time thinking about an 85 year old having a blood pressure of 110 over 70. Um, I uh, just everything we know about aging. So I'm, um, yeah, I think it merits watching, but um, Gosh, I, I think I just needed to be better defined for me with regard to this population uniquely. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. So on that note, we'll go to our final article for uh, this review of the November 2021 issue of JAMDA. Uh, adverse events following one dose of mRNA COVID-19 vaccination among U.S. nursing home residents with and without 
a previous SARS-CoV-2 uh, infection. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Brown, I, I have to, to laud um, uh, Jamda and the editors for, you know, for really keeping this conversation alive, looking mm -hmm. at different different issues around COVID-19 that really do impact uh, the folks for whom we provide care. And here's, um, and here's another, um, uh, 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 here's evidence of that further. So, you know, um, what, what did you find useful? Did you find anything provocative? Tell us about this article. Yeah, Wayne, I completely agree. I think this article really highlights that um, just JAMDA's commitment to ensuring that we're continuing to think about um, COVID-19 and how it impacts our residents and our patients. So right. um, I thought this article was great, particularly as Thanksgiving is quickly approaching. It's, it's time to arm ourselves with some more data and information to share with our questioning family members around the dinner table this holiday. And this article does some of that. Um, it's full of great information around adverse events that may or may not follow the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, so this was a prospective cohort study, which included a large number of individuals. I thought they did really well with that. Um, nearly 21,000 nursing home residents who received their first dose of an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine between last December, December 18th, 2020, and February 14th, 2021. Utilizing the electronic health record from a large nursing home provider chain from which all participants were residing, adverse events were identified as classified by the Brighton Collaboration, occurring within 15 days of a resident's first COVID vaccine. Compared with residents with no previous SARS-CoV-2 infection, the study observed statistically significant lowered adjusted mortality rates um, among residents with previous symptomatic or asymptomatic infection. So although reactogenicity increases with pre-existing immunity, the work here did not observe higher rates of adverse events among nursing home residents with or without prior natural infection. In fact, this study suggests that COVID-19 infection regardless of whether it was symptomatic or asymptomatic, did not increase the risk of an adverse event following COVID-19 vaccines. Although some adverse events were identified following the vaccine among those with no previous COVID-19 infection, that did not occur among the unvaccinated. No difference in rates were statistically significant after adjustment. It's a bit hard to generalize the data here as the individuals with prior infection who lived to be vaccinated were perhaps more likely to be healthy and therefore more tolerant of the vaccine. However, it's interesting work and it supports that vaccination after infection is still safe. Hmm. Yeah, and I have to wonder if we're just, if we're just talking about um, you know, immunogenicity with regard to older adults and mm -hmm. on the vaccine. So, um, very, very interesting study. No, thank you, Dr. Brown. Um, you know, I have to say, Drs. Brown and, and Sloan, um, uh, the November 2021 issue of JAMDA really does bring forward a number of things um, for me. One, um, clinical, actionable, um, uh, relevant articles like the ones on, on hypotension. Um, a glimpse into what our present and what our future post-acute and long-term care is going to look like. And, um, and 
in discuss and in, in discussions about about things that are affecting our communities today. I well, wow, what a what a solid lineup, and and kudos to uh, to both of you for bringing this to uh, to our listeners and to our readers. We do choose articles that we hope will be resonating with our um, listeners. Yeah. Well, resonation is the uh, is the is the the word of the podcast. That's for sure. Uh, and this does draw our Jam Down the Go podcast to a conclusion. Uh, under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, uh, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, the Journal of the American Medical Director Association continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care and beyond. Uh, please take a look at the November 2021 issue. They just keep getting better and better. Dr. Sloan, Dr. Brown, once again, Thank you for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for JAMDA on the go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-acute care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex, A-P-E-X, dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.